I think the most fun I ever had teaching in the seminary, besides sabbaticals, were the class sessions where I said we were going to do nothing else except wrestle with a parable, a parable like this one. And I would set out two goals. One, let's see if we can figure out what this one might mean, because it could mean a lot of things. And two, let's see if we can figure out how one might go about preaching it. Because we were dealing with parables, I drew upon something that one of my mentors used to do, and that was he, he talked about different levels or strategies of reading and interpreting parables. The first one, paraphrased, would be something like this. Sure, that makes sense. With the sure that makes sense approach, you, you read it, you interpret it, and you go, yeah, that, that, that feels right, that feels comfortable. That sure that makes sense approach would be the kind of traditional interpretation of this parable. You, you heard it read. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee, one's a tax collector, and you know exactly what to expect. This guy, this Pharisee, is going to be a religious hypocrite, and he does not disappoint. Yeah, he starts off praying, but his prayer somehow transitions into, it sounds like he's reading his resume. He starts bragging about how he does this and he does that and he fasts and he tithes and, and maybe we would have wanted him for a member except he's so full of himself. He even in his prayer compares himself to the other person. I'm just glad I'm not like this guy. The tax collector on the other hand, well, none of them were Boy Scouts, let's be honest, but can you name a tax collector in the New Testament who doesn't end up following Jesus? Even a few verses after this, Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, filthy rich, gives half of his possessions to care for the poor and follows Jesus. Hmm, kind of makes sense. It's very consistent with Luke's theology. The insider's they're left on the outside, and the outsiders get in. But in seminary, you don't get to stop with the first level. You have to dig a little deeper. And the second level might be paraphrased as, huh, I never really thought about it like that before. Not a, oh yeah, sure, that makes sense, but a, huh. So you have to get beneath the caricatures to the real characters. And you cannot imagine how much time is spent in seminary trying to undo the stereotypical view of Pharisees. You've heard me say it before, and I told students in class, there, there were two schools of Pharisees. You couldn't lump them all together, and there was a conservative one and a more progressive one, and one followed Hillel and one followed Shammai, and, and it's complicated. And, and we don't know which school this Pharisee was in, which one he aligned himself with. But when he starts praying, the words he uses are almost verbatim from Deuteronomy. He's just a good Pharisee. And when he compares himself, he's just thanking God that he's not like that. I mean, aren't you glad that you're not a drug dealer? Thank God. Aren't you glad you don't run a payday loan place? Thank God that's your testimony. And as for this tax collector, or more accurately, toll collector, well, he sold his soul to the devil. 
I mean Roman Empire, but same thing. He went to work for Rome. He was a Jew who cheated his fellow Jews. He would take bribes. He would take more than was due. So it, but at the end of the parable, and we don't usually get this. With most parables, you're just kind of left scratching your head. But with this one, Jesus says, I tell you this, so you know it's the moral, right? Here's the moral of the story. I tell you this, the tax collector went to his home justified rather than the other. What? No wonder that's called, huh, I never thought of that before. How can it be that a good guy is bad and a bad guy, it just doesn't make sense. And it's at this point in the class that I would usually tell them a story, and I think I've told you this one before. How when our kids were little and we'd be out running errands on a Saturday, you know, three kids loaded in the minivan, and it wasn't like we had to go grocery shopping. We just need to pick up a few things and go in the dry cleaners or... And so Carol would run in, and I would sit in the van, and, and you know how that's supposed to be five minutes, but when you're the one in the van, it feels like an hour, right? The kids are going crazy. So I made up this game. You, you make up a story about the people going in and out. Like I would say, hey, you see the guy with his shirts going in the dry cleaners? He's a Russian spy. <laughs> and the kids would light up. And one of our daughters, oh, you see that woman? She's an acrobat with a circus, and she tames elephants. <laughs> it was just a kid's game, but I know adults who still play it. They make up narratives about others. The sociologist Malcolm Gladwell in his book Blink says, we're pretty good at it. And he means that in two ways. One, we're pretty good at it because we do it all the time. But he actually says there's some evidence to suggest that we're pretty good at judging others, but only pretty good. We make mistakes. We don't always get it right. I know you grew up and told your kids the story of the three little pigs, but did any of you have the children's book, The True Story of the Three Little Pigs, as told by the wolf? His name is Alexander, thank you very much. And as for all of this huffing and puffing and such a bad person, he says, hey, it's not his fault that a wolf's diet is cute little pigs and bunnies. If cheeseburgers were cute, you'd be huffing and puffing too. You'd be big and bad. Huh. I never thought about it like that that. I started wondering, if the tax collector published his memoir, what would he tell? I, I'm imagining he would, he would tell you about how his father and his father's father, all the way back, how they told the story of how the Jews were slaves in Egypt, and how God led them out and generations later, how the Babylonians attacked and destroyed their temple. And now the Romans were there. You have no idea how hard it was. And they were going to resist. But, you know, it just wasn't that easy. And so he capitulated. He became a tax collector. But he was going to be a different one. He would be a good one. He wouldn't cheat his fellow Jews. And he wouldn't take extra. 
but you know, it's just not that easy. And then one night, wakes up in a cold sweat, his heart is racing, so he goes to the temple to pray. Huh, I, I never thought about it that way. But it turns out there's a third level for reading parables. And it's the, oh my God, I never imagined. It's when the parable absolutely shocks you and rocks your world. In this case, it's in that little bitty statement at the end. This, I tell you, the one went home justified rather than the other. It's that little word, rather. In Greek, it's para, like parallel and paralegal and parable. And it means alongside. You know that. Two lines, they're alongside each other, so they're parallel. And a paralegal works alongside the attorney. And a parable is a story set alongside the kingdom of God. But that means this, I tell you. The one went to his home justified alongside the other. What? Oh, my God, you telling me that Pharisees and tax collectors are justified in the eyes of God? How, how, how can that be? I mean, we're pretty much the religious people in this one, right? I mean, we're the Pharisee. We get up and we go to the temple. We just call it church. But going home from the temple, how does it, how does it sit when we hear that they can be justified too? and us. I have another parable to share, a story to set alongside this one, and it is one that I've been living for the last month. Many of you know that I've been battling back pain, which is, to put it mildly, I have bulging discs and a pinched nerve, and it hurts so bad sometimes that I can't breathe. So I've been to the doctors and to the ER, and I've had the CAT scan, and I'm going to therapy, and I'm doing all those things. And every single one of them, you know, they start with, now on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your pain? And apparently 11 and 12 are not good answers. <laughs> so I started going to physical therapy, and he asks, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, and he recommended, besides just therapy, that I walk in a therapy pool and stretch. And it just so turns out that our health club that we belong to has a therapy pool. It's right next to the lap pool, which is where I usually swim laps. On the days I'm not walking miles and lifting weights and playing golf, but now I limp down into the therapy pool, four foot, fairly small, warm as a bath, and oh my gosh, it feels so amazing to be that light. But I'm surrounded by people older than me who have had surgeries and strokes and they're recovering and people lifted out of their wheelchair with hydraulics into the pool and it is very humbling. And here's what I am ashamed to admit. But I kind of had it, I kind of pondered in my heart, or I sort of regarded it this way, that 
that people in this condition, they, they're not doing something right, you know? Like, I mean, I eat yogurt, and maybe they don't eat yogurt, and I stretch, and I exercise, and, and I trusted in myself, and I regarded others with contempt. And I feel horrible about it. So three days a week, I go to the physical therapist, and he says, so on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate your pain today? And three days a week, I limp down into that pool, and I ask myself, on a scale of 1 to 10, how is it with my soul? <laughs> 